Welcome to the Pockets of Knowledge podcast, where we share illuminating stories and knowledge to inform, educate, inspire and empower you in the areas of business, health, finance, philanthropy, art, and entrepreneurship, designed to help you achieve your goals. And now here is your host, Desiree Stanley. Welcome everyone to the Pockets of Knowledge podcast. I'm your host, Desiree Stanley. And with me today is my guest, Janet Dalgleish. Welcome to the show, Janet. I have so been looking forward to our conversation. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Desiree. It's always a pleasure to be able to bring ideas and knowledge. And I love what you're doing with this podcast. And I love the idea of pockets of knowledge. I think that's the key because we can't know it all at once, but we can certainly take on board little bits at a time. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And that was part of the concept is getting those little nuggets, those kernels of knowledge that can help us uh, grow and develop and become the people that we need to become. And thank you very much. I appreciate that. I want to talk about you. You are a life coach, but what I love about something you said is you're on a mission to wreak more joy in the world. (laughs) And so let's talk about that to start. And then you can fill in about your journey, where you started, because you've had a very experienced life and you've lived a lot of different experiences. And so I want to hear all about it. Thank you for that. Well, when the phrase reeking joy occurred to me, we were used to the idea of wreaking havoc and wreaking disaster. And I thought, what would be a really revolutionary thing to do? And it occurred to me that wreaking joy would actually be far more subversive than wreaking havoc. Because in a way, joy is an act of political resistance. When you think about it, you can't radicalize somebody who knows how to experience joy, who knows how to live an authentic life, and who has the opportunity to do that. So being able to wreak joy in the world doesn't just mean for each individual, but that also includes, weaves in the fact that I'm also quite an activist for social justice in my sort of non-professional life. And it, it weaves those things together really nicely for me. The idea that if everyone on the planet had access to joy, the joy of living an authentic life, then the war would be over, hunger would be over, all those things would be over. Obviously, there's a part of me that's quite an idealist and I can only do this more or less one human at a time or a small group of humans at a time. But we have to start with where we are. And so it, it brings me back to re-energizing what I'm here to do and what I want to do, this idea of wreaking joy. If I'm wreaking joy just by having one Facebook post that that educates or enlightens or entertains, or if I'm doing it through a group coaching program, or if I'm doing it through a book or whatever, then I figure my work here is done. (laughs) So you mentioned a little bit in there about the political side. And you do call yourself unapologetically political. And so if you want to share a little bit of that and then dive into where you started and where you are now and that journey, that would be great. I think now that I'm where I'm at in my life, it's actually quite easy to look back and see the journey as it unfolded. So as a kid in the playground, I hated it when somebody would bully another child and then a teacher would come up and punish both people equally. The idea that bullying is acceptable and normal and it's just kids fighting really offended me deeply. And of course, as a kid, I had no tools and no power to do anything about it. 
And then my first career was actually as a professional puppeteer. I wanted to work in theatre and puppetry being a performer was fabulous, but I was a bit shy, so I became a puppeteer. And over the sort of 20 years of doing that, very frequently I found myself, whether it was a TV production or a theatre production, I would be the union rep for the production. I remember one incident working on a kids' TV thing where Obviously, we have, like the US, we have some pretty strict labor laws in Australia. And when kids are on a break, they're supposed to be on a break. And I'd watch this poor kid who was clearly really stressed out and tired and getting crotchety. I think she was eight years old. And they had some newspaper come in to do an interview with her during her lunch break. And I was like, no, that's not okay. So I rang the producer, who was a great guy, and said, did you know that the publicity people are doing, making the kids work over lunch break? And he fixed it straight away. So that sense of being able to stand up for the powerless, stand up for the vulnerable, that was something that started to weave into my working life back then. And then I was injured, which meant I couldn't do it anymore. So I ended up working for the union that looks after actors and then later the union that looks after academics. And I realized what they have in common is these are people who are passionate about what they do, which leaves them quite vulnerable to exploitation, to being overworked, underpaid, treated fairly badly. And from there, it was a very short step to doing more overtly political activism. And at one stage, I even spent a year as the sort of executive assistant to a federal member of parliament in Australia. She's still actually in the government now. And that was an amazing experience. I got to write speeches for her. I got to participate in the political process. I got a really deep understanding of how it works and how it works within parties, etc. Although I realized that it wasn't satisfying enough for me because I was now doing it at such a distance. I wasn't getting that personal experience of helping an individual. I was doing quite a bit of that during my time working with this politician. I would quite often help out individual constituents who would come to the office with problems and difficulty and needing help navigating the system. And that was great, but it wasn't. What I was really craving, I found out later, was I didn't want to be rescuing people. I wanted to be empowering them. And in the years as a union organiser, I had been able to do that a few times. I'd been able to support people while they stood up for themselves in difficult, toxic situations. I won't go into details, but there are some really horrifying stories of how people get treated in the workplace. I'm sure you understand what that's like. And being able to help people stand up for themselves, that was so rewarding because not only did they solve the problem, but they also inoculated themselves to some extent against it happening again. I remember one person saying to me, she was in tears in my office, and she said, I'm a strong woman and I feel so helpless here. And being able to say to her, I can support you with this and here are the tools you need and here's the being behind the scenes helping with that to the point where she wasn't just standing up for herself. She herself became involved at a committee level in the union and helped other people. And so when the time came to leave that work, I had become aware of coaching and its potential for doing this same kind of work. And that was what I decided was going to be my next career because it gave me the opportunity to not just do it in the framework, this narrow framework of in the workplace. That's great. And I think it's an amazing privilege to help people in the workplace because that is what 
so many of us spend so much of our time doing. But I wanted to expand it to people, particularly to women. Initially, when I set up my coaching practice, I did work with men. But over the years, I've realized that while men also need support in a whole lot of different ways, my background and my interests lie elsewhere. That was really the foundation, the journey that, that, that I can't separate my passion for diversity, equality, inclusivity. I can't separate that from the coaching work that I do. They're intri- intrinsically interwoven. Yeah. That's such an amazing story. And thank you for sharing that with us, Janet. I, I think it's really easy to see how even just as a young child, you wanted to be a supporter for other people and help them. And it's clear in everything that you did, working in the union, helping the actors. And I think even with the politician and getting that side of it as well, I I think it's really that overarching, you want to help people. Mm -hmm. And so it's very clear that's just been your life's work. And it's amazing. Uh, what you're doing. I think it's awesome. So let's talk then a little bit about how we can empower ourselves because you you mentioned like you want to provide tools. You want people to be able to have something they can work with, not just somebody who's going to save them, but you know, what they have inside that they can save themselves. Yeah. I, thank you. This is such a great question. So I think one of the things that I have observed over the years of being a coach, I've been in business for more than a decade now. And one of the phenomena that I have observed over the years, and it's happened to me as well. So I'm not sitting here on my high horse saying, oh, it's never happened to me. It's definitely happened to me. There is a very interesting phenomenon that occurs when we embark upon a journey of self-awareness, empowerment, healing, growth, expansion. We can also acquire some baggage along the way from that very process itself. And initially it puzzled me. I couldn't quite work out where it was coming from. I knew that it was bothering me. So what I'm talking about is how there's a moment very often when we're doing this kind of self-improvement work where we notice that there's a pattern, that we have a pattern of behavior or a habit of thought that keeps recurring. And we don't give ourselves enough compassion. Very often, we kind of pile on another layer of shame and guilt about it. So for example, somebody who notices, who becomes aware of an old thought habit such as I'm not lovable and starts working towards changing that to I am lovable or I am someone who could be loved or whatever it might be, but catches themselves falling back into it. And immediately the reaction is, I'm terrible. I'm doing a bad job of this. And we get into this shame spiral of self-criticism. It took me a while to figure it out. But I, the conclusion that I came to over a lot of investigating was that culturally, we have been given a very strong push towards what I call rugged individualism, a sense of I'm responsible for it all. I create my own reality. It's up to me to fix it all. And that's not untrue exactly. But I think sometimes we don't take into account the impact of the systems in which we were raised. So we were all of us raised in multiple systems of oppression. 
whether we call it, whether it's the patriarchy, racism, heteronormativity, ableism, all of those sorts of systems own. So our brains are told this is where we belong. The people who are like you have, these are the qualities that they have. But we also witness that happening to other people. So for example, if I'm thinking, well, I don't belong in certain places, I know intellectually that I'm at no risk if I'm in a place that I'm not supposed to be, air quotes. I know that I'm at no risk, but my brain has witnessed what happens to people who move outside of their, the, the zone they're supposed to stay in. And my brain has seen images of people who have died as a direct consequence of being in the place they weren't supposed to be or trying to get move up in life or I'm thinking particularly of, for example, images from the 1960s during the civil rights movement of people who were trying to vote, which is their legal right, who died because of it. My brain has witnessed that and so have the brains of all of us who are alive on the planet now because even if we weren't alive at the time, we know what that happened. So for my brain to conclude that it would be dangerous for me to get out of my little comfort zone, that's actually a completely reasonable thing. So for me to suddenly feel shame or guilt about the fact that I have that programming, that's not helpful and it's not accurate. One of the, the dynamics that doesn't get talked a lot about in the sort of self-improvement empowerment field is the idea that the systems around us are broken. They have been broken for millennia. They install a whole lot of toxic stuff in our brains at a very deep level. We grow up swimming in these waters, these toxic waters, and we are not aware of it for the most part. It takes a lot of work to become aware of these unconscious biases in our own heads. And so uh, we get this kind of toxic layering of mess that nobody else can clean up for us. It's really annoying, I have to say. It's really annoying to go, the system installed all of this nonsense in my head and now I've got to clean up the mess. That's outrageous. But unfortunately, that's the way it is. But what it does mean is when I notice my unconscious programming holding me back, at least now I can go, okay, it's not my fault. It's not a character flaw. It's not something wrong with me. I do have to clean it up. I can't just go, oh, well, I'm a helpless victim. There's nothing I can do about it. I do have to do some work to clean it up. But at least I don't have to feel guilt or shame about the fact that I have that programming, whatever it is that's keeping me stuck or holding me back. I'm not helpless. Janet, that's so excellent. Such a great reminder. And what an interesting way to think about the programming, if you will, and how it's as if it were installed like software on your computer just comes with in software that's installed. So these things that we're taught, that we're raised with, that the environment that we grow up in is installing these systems into our brain. And it's such a great way to think about it, I believe, because now you can look at it like, okay, I recognize that there are these things. And like you said, it's not that there's anything wrong with me. Mm -hmm. This is the software that's been installed. And now what can I do to correct it? It's like installing that uh, virus 
cleaner onto your computer, right? So yes, I, I love the, that you're talking about it this way because it gives us an opportunity to look at these things from a different perspective. And, and so it's excellent. So thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. And I really love that, that analogy of the virus patch. I think that's a great analogy because we don't arrive on the planet as a clean slate. We don't arrive completely neutral. We have talents and preferences and things that we bring with us to the planet that form a, a, a complex, interesting, unique human being with potential for all kinds of amazing things. And then the programming gets layered on top. So what we're doing, the virus patch, it's, it is the cleanup. It's basically uninstalling that stuff so that the true radiant self can emerge, so that it can shine forth. And one of the things I always like to say to my clients is, it's a bit like when the sun is, is hidden behind clouds. It doesn't matter how deep the clouds are, how thick and heavy and gray the clouds are, the sun never went away. That core, authentic you never goes away. It's always there. It's always with you, no matter how many layers of programming might be in the way, like clouds in the sky. And then it's just the work of unlearning the stuff that got taught, that got installed. Yeah. Oh, and that's such a great point, that idea of the sun is still there. And so that part of you, that authentic part of you is still there. And it's just a matter of peeling away all of the junk and getting back to it. And so I love that analogy as well. That's brilliant. So then let's talk a little bit about how we can do that reprogramming since we've got this kind of computer terminology going on. <laughs> how do we begin to work on that? Well, I think one of the key principles to understand is that this is unconscious stuff. This is not so we don't do it through a single act of willpower, for example. There's going to be a moment of revelation where we suddenly become aware that we have a particular piece of programming. So again, using the example of if the programming is I'm not lovable, we're going to have that moment of revelation of going, oh my God, this explains so much. Now I suddenly understand why I have walked away from good relationships because I was so afraid that person would discover I'm not lovable. And so I left them before they left me. So this unconscious programming drives our behavior. That's how humans operate. And the revelation that we have a piece of programming is really valuable, but it's not the full story. We can't necessarily change it through an act of willpower. But the good news is brains are incredibly easy to change. And this is the part that got me really excited. When I started coaching, it was around the same time that Norman Deutsch came out with his book, The Brain That Changed As Itself. And he was talking about the phenomenon of neuroplasticity, which is basically the way that we can use our thoughts and behaviors, our deliberate thoughts and behaviors to physically and literally rewire the brain. We can change that programming through things like neuroplasticity far more easily than we think or than, than we used to think. For 400 years, ever since Rene Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. For 400 years, we thought that the adult brain was fixed, that the brain was pliable and malleable in children while they were learning. And then once you hit adulthood, that's it, all over Red Rover, your brain is fixed, can't change it. That turns out to be complete nonsense. The brain is eminently changeable. We know that now from work that's been done 
with stroke victims, helping them not just find new neural pathways in the brain, but actually grow new brain cells. All of the things we thought we knew about the brain turn out to be false limitations. We can rewire the brain. And the two things, there are only two things you need for rewiring a brain. One is repetition and the other is engagement. First of all, you want to think about what is it I'm trying to reprogram here? If it is the thought, I'm not lovable, then what we want to install or what we want to rewire it to is I am lovable. This is why when affirmations work, this is why they work when they work. They don't always work for everybody because we're not always doing it quite the right way. And there are lots of different ways that we can use neuroplasticity, but this is just an example. So let's say we're going to say, okay, I'm going to retrain my brain that I am lovable. We can use an affirmation. We can use a set of questions. The brain responds instantly to questions through a process called instinctive deliberation, where you ask the human brain a question and it will drop whatever it's doing and for a split second and turn all its attention to that question. And we can take advantage of that. So we could ask a question like, how was I lovable today? Not was I lovable, but how was I lovable today? I know that there were times today when I was lovable. I was lovable when the stranger in the store, grocery store, smiled at me. I was lovable when my fur baby came and licked my face. I was lovable when I got a, a nice phone call from a client. How was I lovable today? We do that as a daily practice, but we blend it with either emotional or sensory engagement. So the emotional engagement can come from simply putting yourself back in that memory of what you did today that, or how you were lovable today, how you experienced love today. You can do the sensory engagement by things, anything that brings sensory pleasure. That can be literally smelling a particular scent that you love, or it can be the taste of something delicious, or it can be the feeling of sensory delight and physical comfort in your body. So stretching your back and moving your posture around, that can be sensory delight. It's a very individual experience. So when I teach this to my clients, I often teach it within a framework. And I say, you pick your sensory engagement or your emotional engagement. If you can do both, that's even better. And that using these two very simple approaches, repetition, sensory engagement, that is what gives us the power to, to use neuroplasticity in a very concrete way. And what I love about this is the brain is the most changeable organ in the body. Anybody who's ever got, done a weight training re regime and has experienced the growth of a muscle or growth of a bicep will know how quickly that can happen. But the brain does it even faster. So evidence suggests that when we are focusing on using neuroplasticity to change the brain, the changes begin within about 72 hours and it can take three to six weeks to find yourself with a different set of unconscious um, beliefs. I will say that if it's been in place for a really long time, you may find there are stray pockets. I liken this to, if you imagine that the old neural pathway, the thought habit your thoughts went down all the time. It's like a superhighway. So it's eight lanes wide, there's heaps of traffic, et cetera, et cetera. When your brain is going to a situation 
it'll say, okay, the, what's the thought that I'm most used to having in this situation? Oh, it's down that highway. I know the way to go. I'm not lovable. I'm in a situation where there's a potential new romance, but I know that I'm not lovable, so I go down that highway. When we're creating the new neural pathway of I am lovable, it's like a little goat track in the grass. So we have to keep working on that new thought over and over again. As we build that neural pathway, it widens, it becomes a trackway, then it becomes a road, then it gets a couple of lanes. So what starts out as a very sort of difficult path to go down for your brain, your brain comes to this kind of, it's a little bit like your brain will come to a fork in the road. It'll go, I could choose I'm not lovable or I could choose I am lovable. It's a strange feeling, I tell you, when you get to these moments where it's quite disconcerting. It's almost, wait a minute, who am I and what have I done with Janet? And so the more we keep choosing that new path. So it's a combination of that neuroplasticity work and also following up with thoughts, conscious thoughts and behaviours that are a match for that new pathway. That's a very short encapsulation of a really complex concept, but hopefully that kind of makes sense. It does. And it is so fascinating, the idea of neuroplasticity, and it's been mentioned briefly on some other episodes, but it is so truly fascinating. And I, again, will recommend that the listeners go do some research on it and learn more about mm -hmm. it because it's incredibly fascinating and useful. And the idea that our brains are not set in stone, they don't stop growing, they don't stop developing, we don't stop learning, we are always learning, right? Mm -hmm. And as you said, the, and I'd mentioned on one of the other episodes, the idea of these grooves in a record. And when mm -hmm. these things, when we repeat these things, these grooves get deeper and deeper, right? Or yes. in, in this case, you're talking about the super highway and this road that is so easy to take because yes. we've taken it so many times. And yes, it does take work on this new path that's, like you said, a little goat path or there's maybe rocks and tree branches and whatever that's in the way that you've got to get out of the way, but it becomes easier over mm -hmm. time. And that's where you mentioned repetition is so yes. important. I love the concepts and the fact that we can change. We are capable of changing. We are capable of changing our minds at any moment. And so the analogy of talking about building muscle, this is the same thing you're doing with your brain, right? When you're changing your thoughts, mm -hmm. it takes time and effort and repetition. Yeah. And the other ingredient that I think is absolutely essential is non-judgment, a willingness mm -hmm. to drop judgment. Because I think this is where, when we're making the effort, it's very commonplace for us to feel that if we're putting in effort, then we should be getting a reward. We should be seeing the result. And if we don't see the result instantaneously, we do have a bit of an obsession with instant gratification in our culture. And so it's very easy for us to fall into the trap of thinking, well, I'm doing all the effort. I'm doing the repetition. I'm blah, blah, blah. Why am I still getting the old thought showing up? And that's the moment of going, okay, that thought was installed by this massive system. It is not a character flaw. I am working towards the change. All is well. It's working. So it's even when it doesn't feel like it's working, because those are the moments where we can tumble over into a sense of, I'm not doing it well enough. I'm not doing it fast enough. I'm not doing it 
powerfully enough. There must be something wrong with me. I had a client this week talking about a particular old thought that was cropping up. And as she was talking about it, I realized that there was not really a problem here. It wasn't changing her behavior. What She wasn't letting it change her behavior. It was uncomfortable. It wasn't fun. But I asked her, what if it was not a problem that you have these stray random bits of that old thought habit? What if we just decided that's not a problem? And suddenly there was a huge release. And so anytime we start feeling like it's not working, we're failing at it, those are the moments where it's absolutely critical to come back to this remembering it's not my fault, it's not a character flaw. Yes, I have to do the work and I'm doing the work and it's working. Because if we tumble into the shame and guilt spiral that says I'm not doing it well enough, that's when it, that can actually interfere with the neuroplasticity process because we're suddenly flooding our brain with all of the stress neurochemicals of shame and guilt. And so we're starting to really toxify the process itself. That's when we can run into problems. Great point that you just made there. It, remembering to not judge ourselves, give ourselves the grace or the leeway that we would give other people, right? It's we've yes. got to give that to ourselves as well and not be judging, I'm not doing it right, or I'm not doing it the way it's supposed to be done or whatever, yeah. because you're not seeing the results instantly. Yeah. And I am so, I'm guilty of that as well. It's oh. I'm doing all this work. <laughs> Why is it? I'm not seeing any results yet. Why not? And yeah. so it's very easy to be like, there's something wrong with what I'm doing. I'm not doing it right or whatever the case may be. Yes. So it's such a great reminder. I totally, and I am there with you. I put my hand up and say, yeah, me too. I, I think this is why I'm so quick to spot it when a client is doing it because it's, oh, I know that one. <laughs> and we all do it. There's a really interesting phenomenon in the brain's learning center, the, the brain's learning system, where we try something and if it doesn't go perfectly, we get a little tiny hit of dread. Something's wrong here. And that's what drives us, what motivates us to correct the thing that we're doing. So whether we're learning a piece on the piano or writing a blog post or whatever it is, when we make a mistake, we mistype, we type something, we spell it wrong. There's this little hit of something in our brain that says, whoa, you better get that right. So we change it and then we get a little hit of dopamine as a reward. And the dopamine helps to speed up the process of forming new neural pathways. This is one of the reasons why the repetition and engagement thing works because we're getting the engagement, the pleasure of the sensory engagement, that helps speed up this new pathway that we're building. And that's also why when we tip in shame or guilt for not making progress fast enough or whatever else, that's why it counteracts it because we're, we're adding to the sense of dread rather than the reward for, no, this is the right way to go. It's like our brain is being told, that new pathway, that's dangerous because that just leads to shame and guilt. Don't go down there. So we want to encourage our brain. I sometimes think being the owner operator of a human brain, it's a little bit like living with a border collie puppy. It's smart as a whip. It's really curious. It's intelligent. It's incredibly trainable. But if you leave it to its own devices and it gets bored or stressed out, it'll chew your shoes and pee on the furniture. 
Oh, yeah. No, I can totally see that. And anybody that knows border collies, I mean, they need to be active. They need to be engaged. They need to be doing something. Otherwise, forget it. You're in trouble. And so I can see how that could be applied to the brain as well if you're not. I mean, of course, we all have to have downtime, right? We're not saying that. Absolutely. But I can easily see how your brain could just go off and you're going down the wrong path entirely. Thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in to another insightful episode of the Pockets of Knowledge podcast. We appreciate your time and curiosity as we explore fascinating topics together. If you enjoyed today's discussion, be sure to join next week for part two of our conversation with Janet Dalgleish. She'll be sharing her wisdom on fixing the less than ideal wiring in our heads, offering us insights on healing, growth, and the ever relatable imposter syndrome. Remember, your journey of learning and growth is a continuous adventure, and we're thrilled to be part of it. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next week, stay curious and keep exploring those pockets of knowledge. 